Good morning, everyone. Great to be with you again here at the chapel, uh, not just this week, but next week, which is especially great for me, since some of my comments from this sermon actually will need to spill over into next week's sermon. So get to do uh, the final two Beatitudes together over these next two weeks. Uh, let's begin, though, by hearing again the blessedness that Jesus uh, invites us into in the Beatitudes. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word from Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word God endures forever. Our beatitude for this morning is, Blessed are the peacemakers. Of all the beatitudes, this one to me is the one I think that the church in our time and place needs to hear afresh. Peace feels like something eluding our world. People are more and more divided and polarized and unable to listen to each other. Uh, there's no conversation, no peace-seeking, nothing uh, increasingly, but two sides shouting at each other across an abyss of memes and tweets and Facebook posts. Is peacemaking even possible anymore? And what does it look like? Uh, I have five questions I want to look at today. That's a little risky, but hopefully we'll move through them uh, at a good speed. Five questions. What does it mean to make peace? Why does Jesus call us to make peace? How does Jesus feel about the failure to make peace? How can you make peace? And why are peacemakers called the children of God? Uh, so what does it mean to make peace? Peace in Scripture is not just a sense of inner tranquility or zen. Uh, it's also not just the absence of conflict. Peace, you probably know the word shalom, has to do with wholeness and well-being. Uh, I'm not going to do a word study on peace, but if you want to watch a great little video, you can go home to uh, YouTube and type in 
the Bible Project Peace. Uh, and you'll get a great little uh, word study, but the idea is that shalom is completeness. It refers to something complex with lots of parts where nothing is missing. A world that is flourishing as God intends it. Uh, that means when the Bible talks about peace, it's not just talking about the spiritual or religious, our relationship with God, although that's key, kind of the fountainhead of peace. It's also talking about something interpersonal, our relationship to others, something societal, our relationship to our community and its laws, which are hopefully fair and equitable, something economic, our relationship to resources and how they are distributed to those who need them, something ecological, our relationship with the earth, something geopolitical, our relationship to other nations, something existential, our relationship to our own physical, emotional, mental well-being. Peace is when nothing is missing. Harmony with God, harmony with others, harmony with creation, harmony with self. And so peace, biblically, is not just evangelism. It's not just about sharing the gospel, as important as that is. It's also about hunger, poverty, inequality, oppression, injustice. If we only care about what people believe about Jesus, but not whether they can eat or have homes or survive or get the services they need to be healthy, that is an anemic or a truncated view of what the Bible means by peace. Gregory of Nyssa, great church father, said, peace is the complete annihilation of anything foreign to goodness. And Jesus in this beatitude does not say, blessed are the peace lovers. I hope uh, you love peace, I love peace, although loving peace doesn't really cost any of us anything. And Jesus also does not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Uh, peacekeeping is about doing whatever it takes to stop the fighting. Uh, peacekeeping can happen when two people are in a fist fight and you pull out a gun. Uh, or maybe some of you remember that back in the 80s, the U.S. used to have an a ICBM with a nuclear warhead on it, and the name of it was the Peacekeeper. You're controlling the conflict, but you're not removing it. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. To make something is to bring it about. Blessed are those who bring about peace, who create wholeness and well-being wherever they go. It's extraordinary when you think about it. Fallen, frail, flawed creatures are invited to bring about the shalom that God wants for his creation. In a polarized, fractured world, we are to become partners with God in the work of putting things back together. Blessed are those who restore broken things and create wholeness. So why does Jesus call us to make peace? I think it's important to recognize Jesus lived in a time when there was no peace. 
even more so, perhaps, than today. It was a time of political oppression, where Rome had installed Herod and Pilate as puppet leaders. It was a time of military occupation. Legions of soldiers filled the land and often committed violence against the people. It was a time of social domination, where the elite held all the power and the lower classes suffered. It was a time of economic exploitation, heavy taxation, and the wealthy benefited from the labor of the poor. It was a time of religious humiliation. Rome allowed the people to continue their religious practices, and they regularly feared losing them. Different people responded to that lack of peace differently. Uh, Pharisees said, we're just going to focus on Torah and holiness. The Sadducees said, let's work with the side that looks like it's going to win. There was a group called the Essenes. They adopted the Benedict option. They said, let's forsake society and go out into the wilderness until God wipes out everybody else. But out of the general populace emerged another group. In our parlance, we might say that at the time of Jesus, it was not yet a political party, but it was a broad movement. And that was the Zealots. Zealots were Jewish revolutionaries who were tempted to bring the kingdom of God through violence. They were oppressed and downtrodden and frustrated. And they also wanted to show that they were loyal to God and they loved him. And so they concluded that militarism, overthrowing their enemies and setting things right, was the way to bring the kingdom. Surely peace involves the destruction of our enemies, doesn't it? And to be clear, it was not just the zealots who supported violent insurrections. Uh, many groups in Israel saw the zealots as heroes fighting the mighty oppressors. And so when Jesus blesses the peacemakers, he is saying there is no blessing attached to zealotry. Remember how the Beatitudes are surprising? God blesses the poor, not the rich. He blesses those who mourn, not those who celebrate. He blesses the meek, not the assertive and the grasping. And God blesses those who abandon the idea that we win by overpowering, overpowering or destroying our enemies. One person puts it this way. In this beatitude, Jesus refuses to be the Messiah of a violent revolution, and he called on his fellow Jews to repent of the idea that the kingdom of God can be established by a violent insurrection. Uh, I think we need to be honest about how in our own day, the spirit of zealotry has begun, or not just begun, has made headway infecting the church in America. There are real similarities between the Judean nationalism of Jesus' day and the Christian nationalism of ours. Unruly mobs with Bibles and Jesus saves banners smashing their way into the capital is exactly the kind of fusion 
of religious and nationalistic zeal that Jesus was speaking against in this beatitude. And like in Jesus' day, there were zealots and there were people who wouldn't go that far, but who supported, winked at, or just excused the exercise of violence. Jesus subverted people's expectations for how the kingdom comes by adopting a vocation of suffering rather than conquering. When people wanted to make Jesus king, he withdrew. He told Peter, those who live by the sword die by the sword. With another election year coming up, I think the church needs to be clear about this. Jesus fully opposed the ways of political domination and political violence that are the marks of Christian nationalism. Perhaps you remember the violent insurrectionist from the Passion narrative, Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, Son of the Father. And Pilate asked the people, which kind of Jesus do you want? The one willing to lay down his life or the one who takes lives? And the people said, give us Barabbas. That is the constant temptation of the people of God. And in this beatitude, Jesus tells us, there is no blessing in the way of Barabbas. So how does Jesus feel about the failure to make peace? Is that even a question that we can answer? How does Jesus feel about the failure to make peace? I think we can because there is a very interesting passage in Luke 19 that tells us. Let me read it to you. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And, you. and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. There are only two places that I'm aware of where we are told that Jesus wept. Uh, one is the tomb of Lazarus. Everyone knows that one because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. But the other is when he drew near to Jerusalem. And Luke's account is particularly interesting because Jesus weeps and he laments, would that you had known the things that make for peace. Would that you had known the things that make for peace. How to make peace. How to be a peacemaker. Jesus sees the temple. Sorry, Jesus sees Jerusalem, he sees the city, he sees the temple, and he sees that it's all going to be destroyed. He sees the violence and the carnage and the suffering that is coming upon the people and their children and the abode of God, and he weeps because his people could not and would not see the things that make for peace. They would not be peacemakers. 
And their failure to make peace leads to even more loss of peace, loss of shalom in the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus wanted Israel's leaders to repent of a violent spirit and adopt the kingdom practice of peacemaking. And he wept when they wouldn't. He wept at the disastrous consequences of choosing the way of hating enemies and making war. He wept because he saw the devastation that their martial spirits would bring. He wept at Lazarus' tomb, and he wept over Jerusalem. Like death itself, the failure to make peace makes the Lord weep. That sobers me. I think that should sober us. Sometimes we delight in the division and the nursing of resentments and the hatred of our enemies, the trying to be on the winning side. Jesus never does. He knows it only leads to the loss of shalom. And the opposite, right, if Jesus weeps over uh, the failure to make peace, he delights in peacemaking. I I think that's why he selected both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot to be part of the twelve. One who was working for the empire and one trying to overthrow the empire. Two people who could not be more opposed to one another politically and religiously. Two people with radically different expectations about what Jesus should be and do. And he put them in the twelve and called them to be at peace. And I can't help but think that every time he saw them trying to sort it out, he smiled a little bit with the same energy, with the same uh, amount of energy that he wept over Jerusalem. The, the same sense in which Jesus weeps over the failure to make peace. He delights when his people try to make peace. So how can we be peacemakers? Number four. Uh, I think the Beatitudes have already shown us the posture of a peacemaker. You cannot be a peacemaker if you don't have poverty of spirit. If other people only have things to learn from you, but nothing to teach you. You can't be a peacemaker if you don't mourn over the sinful condition of the world, the church, and your own heart. You can't be a peacemaker if you aren't meek and surrender to God, if you have to overpower people and be the winner in every argument. You can't be a peacemaker if you aren't hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you only care about your own tribe and can't seek the good of others and the world. You can't be a peacemaker if you aren't merciful, able to give people love and understanding regardless of their response. You can't be a peacemaker if you aren't pure in heart, someone who rejects deceit and manipulation. Right after this beatitude, I think Jesus gives us an example of peacemaking in Matthew 5, 21 through 26. That's where Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder. Then he diagnoses a deeper heart pattern. He says, um, don't be angry with your brother. Don't insult him. Don't hate him. And then he concludes with this incredible command If you are offering your gift on the altar and you realize your brother has something against you, leave your gift and go be reconciled to your brother. 
when you take it all together, here's what Jesus is saying, I think. If you want to be a peacemaker, the first thing you have to do is overcome your own anger. The first place the peace of God's kingdom has to break through is in your own heart. If you want to be a peacemaker, the second thing you have to do is overcome inertia. Stop what you are doing, even if it is worship, and step into the conflict. It's going to be messy, it's going to be difficult, but you cannot just let anger linger. And if you want to be a peacemaker, the third thing, hopefully, is overcoming enmity and turning an enemy into a friend. Go and be reconciled. Make peace by breaking the pattern of anger and insults and walk in the way of grace. Now, let me make briefly a couple of very practical comments about being a peacemaker. Three practical comments. First, cultivate a peacemaking outlook. What I mean by that is spend less time seeing the world through the polarizing lenses of things like conservative versus liberal and more time seeing it through the lens of who is making peace and who is fomenting strife and division. Don't give your allegiance to people who endorse division. Don't heed the voices of those who only stoke fear, hate, and violence in our hearts. Uh, I'm deeply concerned about the way that Christians who are called to be peacemakers are increasingly attracted to public figures, commentators, and politicians who love to make chaos and foment unrest, who want to make anything but peace by encouraging people to nurse their anger rather than repent of it. Remember that in your online life, peacemaking means not condemning people, mocking people, or rejoicing in any form of ill that may strike people who don't agree with you. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the culture war victors. Second practical comment. Cultivate reaching across boundaries. The temptation to escape from people who are different than you and live in an enclave of those who think like you and agree with you is the opposite of peacemaking. Again, Jesus enlisted a tax collector and a zealot into his band of disciples. R.T. Kendall said that peacemaking brings together people who are poles apart theologically, culturally, socially, financially, politically, and even sexually, and makes unlikely matches saying, let's become friends. True peacemakers aren't so convinced they understand it all that they can't let God teach them through people who are different. And third, practical comment before we move to our final point. Cultivate a peacemaking lifestyle. And what I mean by that is this. Peacemaking takes time. It's not something you go out and do in a half an hour. War and violence 
and political domination offer the false promise of a quick fix. Peacemaking is a painstakingly slow, incremental process that will demand patience and persistence in loving other people. It can only be done by those who are willing to work over the long haul because they have entrusted themselves to God. Okay, finally, let's ask, why are peacemakers called the children of God? I think we know this. God is in his being a peacemaker. He is the God of peace, Romans 16, 20. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace, Romans 14, 17. And he is in the business of taking enemies and turning them into friends, making peace through the death of his son, Romans 5.10. When God sends Jesus, he sends him as the bringer of peace. Isaiah calls Jesus the prince of peace, whose government and whose peace will increase with no end. Zechariah proclaims Jesus comes not on the war horse, but on the humble colt to break the battle bow and proclaim peace to the nations. The angelic announcement at his birth, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker who makes peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1, so much so that Paul can even say Jesus is our peace, not just the one who makes peace, he is our peace who has made peace between Jew and Gentile by destroying the dividing wall of hostility and in one body reconciling both to God through the cross, Ephesians 2. I'm just quoting lots of verses because this is everywhere in the New Testament. The cross of Jesus is the ultimate act of peacemaking. So if our peacemaking does not look like the cross, in sacrificial love and self-giving, something is wrong. So the God we serve is the God of peace who brings a kingdom of peace through the Prince of Peace who through the cross becomes our peace. And when we are peacemakers, we participate in God's own work of making peace. We get a part, uh, we get to play a part even as fallen, weak creatures. And we are never more like God than when we are trying to make peace. That is when we are imitators of our Father, the great peacemaker, which is why we shall be called the children of God. Uh, so Jesus says to us, My peace I give to you. Uh, having received his peace, let us go out with the unlimited resources of his peace to demonstrate that peace to others. Amen? Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your peace. We thank you that you're the God of peace. We thank you for your Son who is our peace. And we thank you uh, for the resources that you give us to make peace. Help us to go out uh, and to demonstrate to the world that we are your children as we seek to be peacemakers. In Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.